assume that you're being listened to um, and then respond accordingly. Just be careful the kind of people you're talking to because a lot of people are spies for the government. You never know who is a spy. Good morning, EICF. I love Unity Sunday. Do you love Unity Sunday? Yes. My name is Steve Ray. For the past several months, I've been covering the largest religious conversion the world has ever seen, Christianity in China. It's a story that's confusing, yet oddly familiar. It's littered with corruption, persecution, perseverance, and fantastic characters like Brother Yoon, an underground church leader who was imprisoned, fasted for 74 days, then later escaped from this maximum security prison by simply walking out. There are the illegal underground churches. This is just like... This is a strange... Just a strange place. And the next generation of Chinese youth. I want you to turn and talk to your partner and tell them if you think there is a God or no God. This is a story that reaches much further than a religious movement occurring on the other side of the world. China's rapid conversion to Christianity will be the most consequential event of the 21st century. In parts two and three of the series, we'll get into the inevitable collapse of the West as we know it. But first, let's set the stage of our future. As bizarre as the underground church leader Brother Yoon may seem, there have been characters like him popping up in China for thousands of years. In the year 700, there was a guy named Luang who lived in Lulan, modern-day central China. Although his town was considered an oasis, the Taklamakan Desert encroached on his city every day. If it wasn't for the Kaidu River, no one would be here. The scant rain, scarce vegetation, and persistent sandstorms made this land deadly. Despite these dangers, guarded caravans full of valuable stones, ivory, and silk would come and go. Luang was too poor to buy any of these rare goods, but he did come to possess one commodity that traveled through his town along the Silk Road. Luang, you see, was a Chinese Muslim. Since before Luang's time, around 300 AD, and for nearly a thousand years after, the Silk Road spread treasures and culture at an unprecedented scale. Precious metals and ivory traveled east, silk furs and bronze traveled west. Along with these commodities came the traditions of the merchants, including Buddhism, Islam, and even droplets of Christian sects that came around the 700s. To generalize the religious landscape of China during this millennium, Let's just say that Chinese religion was a complex mix of folk religion, Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucianism. By the 15th century, the old Silk Road was rendered irrelevant by ships along the Silk Sea Route. The desert extinguished the remains of the old Silk Road towns, and China became increasingly isolated. In contrast to the scant amount of Christianity drizzling into China in the 15th century, Europe had already been saturated by it. By this time, Christianity in Europe was at a corrupt mess. There were three clergy simultaneously claiming to be the Pope, 
Eastern Orthodoxy and Western Christianity had failed to unite, and the continent was on the cusp of the Protestant Reformation. Despite Europe's chaos and China's isolation, Christian missionaries were not discouraged. People like Robert Morrison looked to the remote nation of China as a place to evangelize. Former Time Magazine journalist and author Dr. David Aikman takes the story from here. Morrison was a very interesting guy. He was an Englishman who wanted to travel to Canton. The only way you could get to Canton in those days from England was either by American ship or a British ship. But if it was a British ship, it had to belong to the British East India Company. The British East India Company did not like missionaries. And so they said, Mr. Morrison, you seem to be a nice guy, but sorry, we don't want you in China messing up our carefully constructed relationships with Chinese officials. You better ask the Americans to take you to Canton. So that's what Robert Morrison did. He traveled to New York, and then he persuaded an American uh, trading vessel captain to sail to take him all the, way around, all the way around Cape Horn, across the Pacific, and he arrived in Canton in September 1807. And on his way across the Pacific, the captain of the ship, a sort of very gruff American uh, seaman, said, uh, Mr. Morrison, do you think you're going to have any impact on the idolatry of the great Chinese empire, to which Morrison famously replied, no, sir, but I think God will. Morrison went on to translate both the Old and the New Testament. By the time of his death in 1829, he had baptized a mere 10 Chinese citizens. As emperors and policy changed, Christians were killed, imprisoned, and banned from practicing. This ebb and flow of Christianity in and out of China continued until the 1950s, when many thought Christianity had come to the end of its rope. And so when the few remaining Western missionaries were kicked out of China in the early 1950s, many people said, that's the end of the Chinese Christian experience. Uh, forget about it. Communism is here. Most Chinese are grateful that the Civil War has come to an end. The communist regime is doing its best to restore normality and prosperity to China. The most devastating period in Chinese history, Chairman Mao's Cultural Revolution began in 1966. Over the next decade, historians estimate between 400,000 and 1.5 million people were killed. Millions more were displaced. The economy came to a halt, historical and religious sites were destroyed, and all religion was banned. Famously, or infamously, is, if you prefer, Mao's wife, Jiang Qing, spoke to some visiting Western reporters in 1975, and she said, you ask about Christianity in China, that's just something for the museum. But Mrs. Zedong was a little off. Ironically, in its attempt to purge the remnants of capitalism and religion, the Cultural Revolution actually provided a platform for Christian teachings. 
Chinese evangelists were able to thrive by providing support and encouragement to suffering families in secret house churches throughout rural villages. Mao Zedong died in 1976, and the Cultural Revolution came to an end. But before the new government was able to clearly define its new religious restrictions, a compelling narrative had begun to stir in the China countryside. It became apparent from anybody who was following what was going on in the 1970s that one characteristic of the growth of the Chinese church was the belief by large numbers of Chinese that health problems were successfully being dealt with by Christian groups. Now, I'm not asking you to kind of believe in miracles or anything like that. All I'm saying is, as a reporter, these are the stories that kept coming out of China. <laughs> and eventually, even if the stories are not true, enough people are believing them to begin the process of becoming Christian. Although the Silk Road has been replaced by airplanes, trains, and ships, there seems to remain a scant yet consistent flow of footprints pitter-pattering across the sand. It seems as though there may be one purpose left for the old Silk Road. These final merchants plan to cross the same desert that Luang once sat on the edge of, and they will be bringing with them the most dangerous commodity yet, Christianity, west, on the road back to Jerusalem. An idea called the road to Jerusalem. Josh Orm, now working on his master's in global policy and Asian studies, was part of a missionary project in China in 2009. It's an old idea as Christianity started coming to China. They saw a progression of the gospel around the world that went west first. And as it has gone around, it has essentially gone around the globe, um, you know, through the Americas, and is now coming back to the Pacific Rim. And they're hoping that they can be the ones that take it to Central Asia and back to, um, back to Jerusalem, basically. Before traveling to Beijing, I wanted to know what Christianity looks like there. There's a limited number of sanctioned churches in different cities um, that, at the time, at least Chinese nationals could be a part of. Um, but it was, you can go, but don't proselytize, don't talk to other people about it. So there was some observable external elements of of religion happening so i didn't really experience the like underground portion but i mean heard a lot about it certainly and and it, i mean it's it's the big conversation that people want to have and that's where brother yoon once hung out underground acting as the most identifiable leader in the back to jerusalem movement above ground in these government sanctioned churches josh mentioned Church websites read statements like, Due to local government regulations, the fellowship is open to foreign ID holders only. Thanks for your cooperation. Another one read, Please note, in compliance with local regulations, a foreign passport is required for everyone who attends. Thanks for your understanding and cooperation. It was through these sanctioned churches I had hoped to come into contact with one of Brother Yoon's old underground churches. Or so I thought. In the next segment of our series, we hit the ground in China. I'm, I'm not really sure what happens here on Sundays. The church definitely isn't on the agenda for most, but for me it is. This is Beijing, China. 
Just be careful the kind of people you're talking to because a lot of people are spies. Music's by Grammatic, Paul Spring, and Winston Dry Todd. A special thanks to Dr. David Aikman and Josh Orm. I've linked to all of them in the show notes.